take the word of God, please, with me and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. And we'll read a portion in chapter 10, then a portion in chapter 11. Chapter 10, we'll begin reading with verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then? That the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And then we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we'll begin reading with verse 20. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? Shall I say to you, Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves... We should not. 
be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry for one another, for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. <coughs> Excuse me. Trust that God will add His blessing to His word. Let's seek the Lord and ask for His help. Our Father in heaven, we come before Thee this morning, conscious, Lord, of the fact that not only does the presence of Christ make the feast, but the presence of Christ makes the preaching. And Lord, we cry to Thee that Thou it's come. Lord, we all need things done in our souls. Lord, we want to see Jesus and we want to understand the supper. So Father, please give help, especially to the preacher and the hearers this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, during the days of the Reformation, as I mentioned in Sunday school, the Mass, the Roman Catholic version of the Lord's Supper, what we've been reading about this morning, was the source and summit of the Christian life. And I read you the quote from the Catechism where the Mass was called the source and summit of the Christian life. For the Roman Catholic, in the Mass, grace is given. And as we read from the Catechism in Sunday School, grace is preserved and grace is strengthened and grace is renewed by the Mass and the partaking of the Mass. And even sins can be forgiven. Because in the Mass, the bread actually becomes the body of Jesus and the cup actually becomes the blood of Jesus. Not that the bread looks, tastes like the body. It is still bread. And not that the cup looks and tastes like blood. It is still wine. But they say that although the accidents, what it appears to be, what all the senses perceive it to be, what it, we would think is, has not changed but the substance has changed. It is actually the body and actually the blood of Jesus. And when the priest says, this is my body, or in Latin, hoc est corpus meum, which sounds a lot like hocus pocus, if he says it fast enough, hocus corpus meum. You could, you could kind of get that if you're not careful. He turns the body and blood, or it is turned, I should say, into or excuse me, the bread and the cup, into the body and into the blood of Jesus. And people in the Reformation superstitiously venerated the bread and the wine. Um, In church history, there are actually places set up for people to go and to worship the wafer, to worship the bread. Um, There were little booths or whatnot, tabernacles they would call them, set up for the worshiping of the bread, which was 
to them the body. And the Vatican II, the Council of Trent said, Vatican II is quoting from the Council of Trent here, and I quote, All the faithful ought to show this most holy sacrament the worship which is due to the true God. And has always been the custom of the Catholic Church. You are to show to this element the worship which is due unto God. And the anathema of God, of course, is annexed to anybody who does not worship the wafer and does not worship the cup of wine. Now, as a result <coughs> excuse me, of this mass, of the terrible abuse of the mass, the reformers viciously attacked it. And they understood that at the heart of the Mass was sola scriptura. The reason why Rome viewed the Mass a certain way was because of the dogmas of Rome. I mentioned to you earlier this morning that it, was, it became a dogma for the church to believe in transubstantiation, that the body and the blood of Christ were actually really present at the Mass. The Reformers, going back to the Word of God, began to struggle over the idea of this transubstantiation of Mass. Luther didn't go far enough. Luther still felt like the body and the blood was in some way present in the elements. Zwingli said yes. Excuse me. Zwingli said no. The body and blood is not in any way present in the elements but then he didn't necessarily see the fullness of the New Testament teaching. And the Anabaptists also didn't see the fullness of the New Testament teaching, saying that the body and blood of Christ is not present, but all we do is come to the table and have a mere memorial, a mere remembrance. But the New Testament teaches more than simply a remembrance, but certainly not transubstantiation. And the one who really understood the New Testament teaching and clarified and articulated it was John Calvin. I have no desire to teach you John Calvin's view, but to teach you the view of the apostles and the teaching of Scripture, which happens to be Calvin's. It happens to be that he rightly interpreted Scripture and rightly viewed the Lord's Supper as it has been taught by the apostles. Now today, many people who understand the superstition of the Mass, which still goes on today, have swung the pendulum to the opposite extreme. And where one day in the Church of God, what was considered the Church of God in the Catholic Church, the Mass was the central aspect of worship. Today, in the Protestant and Evangelical Church, if we're not careful... The Lord's Supper has simply become an add-on to the service. And it's, it's viewed in a sometimes a very flippant way. <clears throat> For some, the Lord's Supper is something that is nothing more than just eating some little, a little cracker and taking a little cup quickly and briefly and then going on with the rest of the service. There is even, was even a pastor I've heard of who had the Lord's Supper with Oreos and Coca-Cola. 
which shows you the lack of understanding of the Lord's Supper. But even Reformed and Protestant people, if, you know, sometimes you wonder if you were to ask, what takes place during the Lord's Supper? What's going on? Why are we here? What's happening? You wonder what people would say. What, what would people say is happening? What would people say is the point of the Lord's Supper? And you know, it's an amazing thing that there are two sacraments given to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is only, well, it should be, only performed once. But people will take the Lord's Supper hundreds and hundreds of times. But if you talk to somebody, they know so much about baptism. And the books fill the bookshelves about baptism often in, in, in the libraries of, of people. I have to say that's the case with me. But what of this sacrament that Jesus instituted for the church to do? And he says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Now, often, I'm not going to tell you what often is. It just means often. So you have to figure out for yourself what often is. But often, we do this often. This is something that is not just done once. So how important is it to understand the Lord's Supper. And so, I want us to understand this morning that the Reformers did not ever desire or seek to do away with the Mass and make the Lord's Supper because it's a sacrament, something unimportant, something set to the side, something that really doesn't mean very much other than just something we do to think about Jesus together. There's so much more to the Lord's Supper. And the people of God need to understand that so that we come with a proper weight to it. And it's administered in a proper way. It's received in a proper way. So, I want us this morning to think about the Reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And in that, I just want to give you three words, which I hope will give us a good understanding of the Lord's Supper. Covenant communion, and blessing. Covenant, communion, and blessing. If you wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. In Luke 22 and verse 20, Jesus said, This cup is the New Testament in my Blood, which is shed for you. This cup is the New Testament. Now, the word testament in our English Bible here is the same Greek word that is translated covenant. And really, it would be perhaps a clearer um, translation to say the cup is the new covenant in my blood as opposed to New Testament. And so the cup in some way, is tied, associated to the new covenant. So the Lord's Supper has something to do with covenant. Because Jesus says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. So in what sense is this the blood of the new covenant? Well, when we think about the Lord's Supper, we need to understand the Lord's Supper as a part of the whole storyline of the Bible. 
We won't be able to understand the Lord's Supper if we isolate it from the whole storyline of Scripture. We would never want to read the New Testament outside of the light of the Old Testament. And we would never want to read the Old Testament outside of the Apostles' interpretation of the New Testament. But in the same way, we can't understand the Lord's Supper outside of the context of the whole storyline of the Bible. Now, the Bible has a storyline. The Bible has a plot. And really, that plot is redemption. Redemption of man. But the way in which God brings about this, you could say the framework are covenants. Covenants. Now, I'm not going to give you an introduction to covenant theology. Um, We don't have time for that. But suffice it to say this morning that God has worked with man in history by covenant. He has entered into covenants with man. And this started in the very beginning when God created Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. He entered into a covenant with Adam and Eve. And in that covenant, he said, if you obey, which he meant not taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you obey, you merit a reward life. The promise was given for life. If you disobey, if you sin, then you will die. You will be a covenant breaker. But God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. We call this the covenant of works that God made with Adam and Eve. And after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God then made a gracious promise in Genesis 3.15. He said, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so right after Adam and Eve fell into sin, and they became covenant breakers, God promises to send a redeemer, or you could say a curse reverser. Someone who would undo this broken covenant. Who would reinstate man back into the covenant. Not as a covenant breaker, but as a covenant keeper. And so then God works in history through covenants. And He brings covenants, and makes covenants, excuse me, with His people. And He makes covenants with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David. And one day, this new covenant. And so God has worked through covenants. And in all of these covenants, the Gospels promised. In all of these covenants, there are also signs and promises. So when we think of the covenants, they're gracious promises of the gospel, and they all have signs. And this is very important, and it will tie in to the Lord's Supper. Think about the covenant made with Noah. What did God promise? I will no longer destroy the earth for man's sake with a flood. What was the sign of that covenant? A rainbow. So you had a promise in the covenant, and then you had a sign. What about the covenant made with Abraham? God said to Abraham, there are a number of things said, but he would multiply his seed, which ultimately is a promise of the Lord Jesus, who is the true seed. There was a physical seed that would come, a spiritual seed that would come. Without getting into the Abrahamic covenant, he made promises, and he gave a sign. What was the sign? Circumcision. He gave a sign. And if you follow the covenants, there are promises and there are signs to the covenant. 
And it's no different when we come to the new covenant. When Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. See, when Jesus said this to the disciples, they got it. They understood. Oh, new covenant, new sign. There's a new covenant. There must be a new sign. They understood that this new covenant was different from the old covenant made with Israel, and so it required a new sign. Now, in the old covenant, we remember that the Hebrew people entered into a covenant with God. And what happened in that covenant? In that covenant, a heifer was killed. And the blood of that animal was sprinkled on the altar, and then it was sprinkled on the people. And that was called the blood of the covenant. When the blood was sprinkled on the altar, it signified, I will enter into a covenant with you because my wrath is appeased. The blood has been shed, my wrath is appeased. Blood is on the altar. And when blood was sprinkled on the people, they've been washed from their sins in the blood of sprinkling. And they can now come into covenant with God because of the shed blood of this animal. What about the new covenant? There is a covenant made with the church. Not by the shed blood of a heifer, but by the shed blood of a man. The man Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 13 and verse 20, His blood is called the blood of the everlasting covenant. It's through the blood of Christ that we are brought into the new covenant. And so, please understand when the cup is set before us, at the Lord's Supper, when you see the cup, when you see the, the wine, when it's set before you, it is, an, it is the picture. It is a visible word. Of what? Of the blood of the everlasting covenant. The blood that has been sprinkled on the altar. The blood that has been sprinkled on the people. The blood that has washed away sin. The blood that has appeased God. The blood that is infinite merit. The blood of the new covenant. So Jesus says, this is the cup. Is the new testament in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. And brethren and sisters, the blood is what secures all of the promises of the new covenant to be yea and amen. When you come to the Lord's Supper, you know what you're doing? You're coming, and as you take that cup, you are declaring, I'm in covenant. When you drink it, you are recognizing, I have been washed with the blood of the Lamb. I'm in a covenant with God. It's a covenantal supper. It's a covenantal feast. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, we read of the new covenant, 
For we, finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's a different covenant. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Verse 10 of chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put, what? My laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God. They shall be to me a people. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. No more. That's the promises of the new covenant. And he says he would make it with Israel. And he did make it with Israel. Not physical, national, but spiritual Israel, which is us. And these promises are secured by the blood. The promises are what? The law of God written in your hearts and minds. God says, I will write my law, emblazon my law in the hearts and minds of those that are members of this new covenant. If you do not delight in the law of God, if the law of God is not emblazoned on your heart, emblazoned on your mind, if it is not what you desire to control your life, if it is grievous unto you, you are not a member of the new covenant. The new covenant is only for those who have the law of God written in their hearts and minds. And then God says, I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. This is a reversal of the curse of Genesis. God said to Adam and Eve, they were, they were put out of the garden, and God was essentially saying, I will not be to you a God. I will not be to you a God. You shall not be my people. You're a covenant breaker. But now, through the new covenant, through the bloodshed of the Lamb, a way is made back, and they're instituted now, reinstated into a right standing with God. And now God says, I will be your God. You shall be my people. I will be your God. My name, my banner will be lifted above you. I will be your God until the death. All that I am is for you and you will be mine. And then the promises also go on to say, you won't have to teach anybody know the Lord. Members of the new covenant know the Lord. And they know Him in their souls, not only in their minds. They apprehend Him in their hearts. And then He says, mercy and the forgiveness of sins will be the portion of everyone who's a partaker of the new covenant, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Their sins will be gone. And by the way, just add this caveat. Well, not caveat, excuse me. Make a note here, although I'm not preaching on baptism, just so you understand. If the Lord's Supper is the sign of the new covenant and baptism is the other sign of the new covenant, if members of the new covenant have the law of God written in their hearts and minds, are in covenant with God, they know God and their sins are forgiven, baptism should only be administered to those who are born again. But, putting that aside, the sign of the new covenant is the Lord's Supper. 
It's a sign. Now you may ask, why does God give us a sign? I mean, isn't it enough that we have a promise? Why do we need a sign? Well, one Scottish theologian talked about marriage as a good example of the need for a sign and covenant and all of that. You get married. It's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. You get married. What do you put on the lady and on the man's finger? You put a ring. Put a ring. Why? Isn't my word enough? Why do you put a ring on their finger? Well, the ring is a sign. It's a sign of what? It's a sign that I've pledged to be faithful. It's a sign that I am yours. It is a sign that you are mine. You try to take your ring off and walk around without your ring on, and your husband or your wife's going to ask you pretty soon, Where's your ring? Why don't you want to wear my sign? Why don't you want to wear the sign that says you are mine and I am yours? And brothers and sisters, at the Lord's Supper, it is as if Jesus comes to his people and he takes off his ring and he says, do you see my ring? I am yours. You are mine. Do you see the bread? Do you see the cup? I am yours. You are mine. I've promised I will forgive your sins. I have promised that I will be faithful to you to the death. I have promised to be your God. I have promised that I will take you with me to glory. Look at my ring. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's Jesus showing his people his ring. Look at my ring the sign of His covenant promises, His faithfulness, and His love. You see the weight of it. You see how the believer should, should feel the, the tenderness of that moment when Christ shows us His ring and reminds us of His promises. So covenant. But then the second thing, communion. And for this, I want to turn you to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The Apostle Paul wrote, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Pay attention to the phrase communion of. In what sense? Is this supper a communion of the blood of Christ? Well, the word communion here is the word koinonia, and it's the word for fellowship or participation. And A.T. Robertson, a great old Baptist commentator, he was a Reformed Baptist, he said, it is, of course, a spiritual participation in the blood of Christ which is symbolized by the cup. Well, what is a spiritual participation? It says right here, we have communion with the blood. We have communion with the body. In some way, we're, we're not only just looking at it, 
but in some way, some sense, there's communion with that blood, there's communion with that body, there's participation with that blood, there's participation with that body. So in what sense? Is Jesus physically present? By no means. It's ridiculous. We know that when Jesus said, this is my body in John 6, he had just finished his discourse where he had described himself as the bread of heaven, as the true manna of heaven, which comes down and by faith is received. He was using figurative speech the whole discourse, and he's using figurative speech when he refers to himself and says that you have to eat my body and you have to drink my blood. He's speaking of by faith taking hold of himself. It's figurative. So no, he's not there. He's not there in body. But he must be there because it says you're participating, you're communing with Jesus. And Calvin answered this question as, I believe the New Testament clearly teaches that we have participation in the feast of the supper with Jesus spiritually. The benefits of His blood, the benefits of His body become ours when when we, by faith, look beyond the bread and look beyond the cup and lay hold of Jesus himself and lay hold of his shed blood and all the benefits of it and lay hold of his body and all the benefits of it. We understand what his blood has purchased for us. We understand what his broken body has purchased for us. And so by faith, we are laying hold of these things afresh. And we see this in the context as well, that there must be a a very real spiritual communion of Jesus in the supper. Because the Apostle Paul goes on in verses 20 through 21 of 1 Corinthians 10 to describe how that the people in Corinth were having fellowship with devils and then coming to the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, you can't do that. You can't have fellowship with devils and then come to the Lord's Supper. Why? Because of the Lord's Supper, you have communion with the body and blood of Jesus. What's the weight of his argument? You can't be spiritually fellowshipping with sin and with devils and whatever else, false gods or idols, and then come and spiritually fellowship with Jesus. It's not possible. It's hypocrisy. And so we find from that in the context, Paul must be speaking of some sort of spiritual communion at the supper between the church and Christ. And that's what Calvin spoke of. And really to understand this, we need to go back and think about the Old Testament sacrifices. Now, when Old Testament sacrifices were done, many times the sacrifices were burned and part of it was given to the priest or to the people to eat. And so, after the eating and after the sacrifice, excuse me, after the sacrifice, there was a time of eating and the people would joyfully eat the remainder of the sacrifice. What was this a symbol of? It was a symbol of this. Reconciliation and peace. The sacrifice of Jesus is offered on the cross. By way of His sacrifice, peace is made with God, and then God comes in this feast, and He joins with His people with joy, and He, and he eats with them at the table. Well, the significance, I hope, is seen. Here's Jesus at the Passover feast, sitting at the table, incarnate God. And He is eating with them. 
because his eye is viewing and looking towards his finished work. This cup is my blood is the New Testament. He's looking towards his finished work. And so he is rejoicing in a feast. He's rejoicing there in what? Communion. You know what the greatest blessing of Christ's death is? It's not forgiveness of sins. That's a great blessing. But the greatest blessing is communion with God. Man is satisfied in God alone and communion with God. Sin is a bar to our communion. Sin is what keeps us separate from God. But when sin is gone, what's the great treasure? Communion with the living God forever in heaven. That's the great blessing. But here at the supper, here is Jesus communing with his disciples, eating with them, speaking with them, communing with them on the basis of his finished work. You know, you, could, you can almost hear Jesus saying, by the way, he is the host of the feast. Let's make this point. Jesus is the host. When we come to the Lord's Supper, the minister might be up there praying. The elders may be handing out the elements. But you need to look beyond that. Jesus is the host. He's sitting at the table, as it were, at the Last Supper with the disciples, and he's lifting up the cup, and he's saying, drink ye all of it. He's offering and breaking the bread and saying, take, eat. He is the host. It's not the minister. It's Jesus. And you could hear Jesus saying in this joyful celebration at this feast, as remember what his shed blood has given to us, what his broken body has brought us into, this feast of communion with the living Christ. We can almost hear him saying like in Zechariah, the Lord in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. He will joy over thee with singing God and man are reconciled. It's as if Jesus says, Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep which was lost. Rejoice with me. I have found my coin which was lost. And like with the story of the prodigal, he says, Bring the fatted calf. Spread the table. And rejoice with me. Let's have a feast. Why? Because my son which was lost has come home. And at the supper, Jesus is there, the host saying, eat with me, partake of my bread, partake of the cup, and rejoice with me because my sheep, which was lost, are home. My coin, which was lost, is home. My child, which was lost, is home. Let's rejoice. The table is spread. All the blessings of my broken body and shed blood is spread before you. Jesus is communing. And so at the supper, Jesus is there. You must, you must understand this. This is so vital that Jesus is there in a very special way. One man said, it's, put it this way, when the preaching of the word happens, we do receive Christ by faith through a heard word. But in the supper, we receive him through a seen word, through a visible word, dramatized. In the supper, it is what? The gospel. We do show the Lord's death. 
It's the gospel dramatized before us so that it not only comes in through the ear gate, but through the eye gate. So we see the gospel before us, dramatized by this supper. And it's not that we receive Christ, excuse me, a better Christ in the Lord's Supper. We receive the same Christ in the Supper that we do in the Word. But one of the old writers said, it may be said that although we don't receive a better Christ, we can perhaps receive Christ better. And the reason for that is, there is something very special about the Lord's Supper when the people of God come together in communion and they take the bread and they take the cup as they're meditating on the gospel and Jesus is there administering the elements, desiring to stir the hearts of his people up to holy love, showing them his ring, where there at that supper, something very special takes place. And we have communion with Jesus. We know this to be the case with even preaching. I have mentioned from the pulpit before, and it's very true, that you cannot listen to a sermon at home and receive the same benefit as being among the people of God on the Lord's Day. You can't do it. Because it is this gathering that God has sealed. It is this gathering where the Holy Spirit Himself is applying the Word in that very special way where God has promised that when His people gather, there will He be. In the same way with the supper. I'm not exalting it to an unbiblical place. But as Paul has exalted it, you are having communion with Jesus. Not His actual body or blood, but spiritually with Jesus. And as I said Well, I'll quote John Knox for this. John Knox said, and I quote, In setting forth the bread and wine to eat and drink, he giveth unto us himself to be received with faith and not with the mouth. So what is going on here is, as we take the elements and we take them with our mouth, we are with the mouth of faith to be receiving the blessings and the benefits of the gospel. We're to be gloriously meditating on the gospel and as the bread enters into our mouth, we are, we are thinking and receiving by faith of the broken body and all of the blessings and benefits of that body to the church and the same goes for the cup. The faith of the church, as one says, overleaps the sacraments and lays hold of the whole Christ who is present in the supper. It's amazing. So Jesus comes to this feast. And what does he offer his church? The prodigal son's father had a table spread with wonderful food and a fatted calf. Oh, but brothers and sisters, he offers his own broken body and blood as the meal not the actual body, not the actual blood, but what that body has accomplished and that blood has accomplished. It is what He has done in the gospel that we are to feast on by faith. And thus it is a a feast of love 
Christ presiding, presiding over the feast. He lifts up the bread and he is essentially saying, Church, I love you. I love you. Do you see the loaf of bread? And in the text, it says, For we being many are one bread. Speaking of the unity of the church. But that one bread is the word for loaf. The bread was broken. A loaf was broken in the presence of the people. And that was part of the ceremony. Because it signified the breaking of Jesus' body. And as, as Jesus, as the host, stands, and you could hear him, his hands grip the bread, and as he rips and tears it, and you hear the bread, pieces of it falling on the ground, you hear it ripping, you hear it tearing, he is saying, Church, I have allowed my body to be torn for you. I love you. I love you. As he lifts up the cup, He is saying, I have poured out my blood for you, church. I love you. That's what he's doing. When Jesus comes and he communes with his church at the feast, what is he saying? He's saying, I love you. Remember my wounds. Remember my blood. Remember my broken body. I love you. See these symbols and know I love you. That's why Charles Spurgeon wrote in his communion hymn, Amidst us, our beloved stands. See, their spiritual communion. And bids us view his pierced hands, points to his wounded feet inside, blessed emblems of the crucified. What food luxurious loads the board when at his table sits the Lord. The wine, how rich, the bread, how sweet. When Jesus deigns the guests to meet, if now with eyes defiled and dim we see the signs but see not Him, oh, may His love the scales displace and bid us see Him face to face. Because that is what is taking place at the Lord's Supper. Communion with Jesus. In communion with one another. As Paul says, the bread, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. That one loaf is to be a picture of the unity of the church. And as we partake, we show our unity filled with the same bread. We're one. And Jesus comes and says, my children, I love you. And then the third thing is blessing. Not only covenant and communion, but blessing. This is the last thought I want to leave you with this morning, is that the Lord's Supper is blessing. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless. The cup of blessing which we bless. Now look carefully at this word, blessing. This is a cup of blessing. Many people, when they come to the Lord's Supper, it's a time, unfortunately, of the opposite of blessing. They feel great condemnation for their sin. They feel the weight of their sin pressing them down. And they feel like they don't belong at the supper at all. And they can't take it. In some churches, half or more of the church won't come to the Lord's Supper 
because they feel their condemnation and the weight of their sin and all of the rest. But the Lord's Supper is to be a blessing for the church. It's to be a blessing. And I want to explain what I mean by that. I don't mean by any means you don't examine yourself. You're living in unrepentant sin. Well, of course, that's wrong. But there are dear children of God that just see their faults and failures. We all sin, not in a continuous unrepentant fashion. We all fall into sin. None of us are worthy in that sense. None. The worthiness, point this out here, the worthiness in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul says, you eat and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What's the unworthiness there? Well, he tells us in verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Now the damnation is not eternal damnation, it's judgment. Not discerning the Lord's body. Paul is not referring here. You're not unworthy because you come and there's sin in, your, in, in you. You're not unworthy because you're not perfect. You're, you're unworthily partaking of the Lord's Supper if you don't discern the Lord's body. If you come in a flippant way and you don't understand the communion with Christ, and you don't understand that this is the emblem of His body, the emblem of His blood. If that is not what is understood, you just come flippantly. That is drinking unworthily. But in the context, he's not referring to unworthiness in the light of someone's um, struggling with sin. So it is a blessing. He offers us a cup of blessing. Now remember that at the Lord's Supper, it was the Passover feast. It was the Passover feast when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper is the counterpart, really, of the Old Testament Passover. Now, I don't have time to explain all of it, but the Passover, you remember, was this time when the children of Israel would remember that God delivered them from Egypt, delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. Remember, the death angel passed over. They, they killed a lamb. A family would take a lamb. They put the blood over the doorposts. And if, if they did that, God would pass over them because they needed blood as well because they were sinners too. And when he destroyed the firstborn of Egypt and he took his people out of Egypt, they remember that through the Passover. And during a Jewish Passover, you could describe the Passover in four cups, really. The first cup would, would be passed around, and there would be a time of rejoicing. Then before the meal was eaten, the father of the house would read the Exodus story, and he would sing some of the Psalms, some called the Hallel. And then the second cup was passed, and the meal would begin. After they would finish the meal, there was a third cup. This third cup was important. It was blessed by the father during the Passover. And he would have said, drink ye all of it. The third cup was to be drunk completely. And then obviously after that, they would have a fourth cup and some other things would go on. But this third cup, no doubt, is the moment when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Because he says he blesses this cup. That's what he, the, the father of the home would do for the third cup. And then Jesus says, drink ye all of it. And that's what the father would do with the third cup. It's a very significant thing. Because it is after the sacrifice is eaten, 
on the basis of that sacrifice and enjoying and eating it, that the cup of blessing is lifted up and the Father pronounces, this is a blessed cup. Now we all who are saved have not only seen Christ's sacrifice, we have eaten of Him. By faith, we have laid hold of Jesus. And so for all of those that are saved, who by faith have laid hold of Christ, have trusted in Him alone for salvation, there is now a cup of blessing lifted up. It doesn't matter how much you fail and falter and struggle with sin, there's a cup of blessing lifted up. A cup of blessing. Now, does it not seem to you strange that Jesus would offer up a cup of blessing to these sinful men? He lifts up a cup of blessing because he was about to take another cup. He was about to take the cup of cursing. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 11, verse 6 of the cup, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. There is another cup Jesus was about to take. And as he went to Gethsemane, and his body heaved, and his blood came through his pores, and he was covered with bloody sweat, and he cried to his father, Oh, Father, let this cup pass from me. Well, why did he say that? Because as he looked into that cup, he saw the terrible sins of all his people. And the Holy Son of God was repulsed to even think about having any association with sin. And then as he looked at that cup, he saw sin. Sins that had been committed by the people of God. Sins of heart, sins of mind, sins of deed, sins over years and years and years, sins of millions, sins of billions, sins of the greatest perversity, sins that are so monstrous you couldn't even imagine being incriminated with it, sins that would bring someone to want to take their own life, sins that were so terrible and wretched that put people in prison for the rest of their lives. And Jesus saw them all in one great look in that cup. And then he saw in that cup the wrath of his loving father. He saw in that cup the wrath of his father would turn his face away from the man Christ Jesus. There was nothing in that cup that made Jesus want to take it. It was a detestable cup that cup was to Jesus. And as we sang this morning, my Jesus, I love thee. You can almost hear the father as he sees Jesus in Gethsemane. My Jesus, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. For at that time, Jesus would take the cup of cursing for no benefit to himself, for the glory of his Father's grace and for the salvation of his people. And he drank the cup of cursing. And as the hymn writer said, Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. 
That bitter cup love drank it up. Now blessings draught for me. And so Jesus at the supper now, he lifts up a cup on the basis of his sacrifice and salvation. And he lifts up a cup and he says, this is the cup of blessing. How? How? When I am such a sinner, I am so worthy of death. I'm so worthy of condemnation. I'm so worthy of wrath. I come to the supper aware of my sin. I come to the supper broken. I come to the supper thinking of what I've done the past week. I come to the supper with all the guilt of my life weighing me down. Oh, hear Jesus say, it is the cup of blessing. It is a cup of blessing, not the cup of condemnation. There's not a drop of condemnation in this cup. There's not a drop of wrath in this cup. It's the cup of blessing. It's for all of His blood-bought people. One Scottish minister named Rabbi Duncan was presiding one day over the um, Lord's Supper in the way that they would in Scotland. I think they would have a table actually there and the minister would be there and people would come to the table and then they would turn around and leave. Another group would come to the table and he would actually give out the Lord's Supper. And one time when the bread was going around, I think it was a cup, the cup was going around, there was a woman who grabbed the cup and with tears and trembling, she passed the cup on. She couldn't take it because she felt she was such a sinner. She was saved, but she felt, I'm so unworthy. And Mr. Duncan grabbed the cup when it came back to him, and he got up, and he walked around the table, and he said, Woman, take it. It's for sinners. Woman, take it. It's for sinners. It's for sinners. And He offers you nothing but a cup of blessing. It's for sinners. Jesus would say, I have drank all your condemnation dry. It's for sinners. So as you come at the time of the Lord's Supper, understand if If you think about it, it is Jesus who's presiding and he wants to pour out the cup of his blessing. He wants to show you his ring. He wants to tenderly speak to you of his promises. He wants to commune with you. He wants to remind you of his covenant. How could we treat it as a light thing? How could we treat it as something to be skipped over? or not attended. It's a precious, precious thing. And it does much for the, for the holiness of His people, for their zeal for Christ and for His kingdom. We trust that God will bless His word to us this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are overwhelmed at the love of Jesus for our souls. We thank Thee for Jesus. We thank Thee, Lord, for the sign. Thank You for the broken body. 
Thank you for the poured out blood. Lord, bless thy people. Lord, may they all feel that they can come to the supper. Lord, may they all feel a joy and an anticipation to come. Lord, we know that even revival has happened during times of the Lord's Supper in the past. Lord, renew our understandings and bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.